0: This episode is brought to you by VideoBlocks. Go to videoBlocks.com/noFilmSchool to get all the stock video you can imagine for only $149 a year.
1: Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord.
0: I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hayne.
1: And it's October fifth, twenty seventeen. On this week's show, how one filmmaker changed the whole advertising industry, a new way to buy and sell lenses, the surprising top-grossing indie film of the summer the best screenwriters of all time, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hi everybody, here we are in downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Although it's not film related, we don't completely live in a bubble, so I must start out the show by sending our most heartfelt condolences to the friends and families of the victims of the mass shootings in Las Vegas earlier this week. We're thinking about you. And in headlines, we're going to kick off this episode with The Bottom Line, where we talk about the business of the business. What do you guys think? New tagline? John hates it. Nah. You should see his face. I mean,
0: I think you just need to come up with a new whole name for it still. That's my personal opinion. Because I think we need to call it the business with a Z. Yeah, you could call it the business. How about the
1: Lizness? Ooh. Now it's my segment. No. <laughs> Listeners, we're looking to you. Please help us rename the bottom line. Tweet the at us. Lizness
0: business. Yeah, something about Lizbiz or something. I mean, <laughs> oh, gosh. Lizness doesn't really, no one's going to know what you're talking about. <laughs>
1: That's none of your Lizness, John. Anyway, so getting into the to be renamed bottom line. We all know by now that the summer was a stinker for major studio pictures and a great one for independent fare. But do you know what the highest-grossing independent film was? I was surprised when I learned the answer. It was 47 Meters Down, a shark movie starring Mandy Moore <laughs> that made over $42 million in its domestic release.
2: So that was the shark movie that wasn't the Blake Lively shark
0: movie? It was like the ripoff of the Blake Lively shark movie? Yeah. I you know I tweeted earlier this year like during the summer, that the next movie I make is going to be a shark movie, because it seems to be a formula for success.
1: I don't know. I'm afraid at this point it may have jumped the shark. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, what's interesting about this film is its distributor, Byron Allen's Entertainment Studios. Never heard of it? That's likely about to change, as this same company just bought three big titles in the last month. Two of them premiered last month at TIFF and her potential Oscar contenders, Scott Cooper's Hostiles, a Western starring Christian Bale, and John Kern's Chappaquiddick about Ted Kennedy's car crash scandal in the 60s. The third is Keanu Reeves's sci-fi thriller Replicas. So who is this guy? Well, he didn't come out of nowhere. He's actually made quite a pretty penny from his own comedy career and from an entertainment business that has been syndicating and selling ad time on low-budget shows and running several small networks like Justice Central and Pets.TV. He started to make the move into movies a few years ago when he acquired Freestyle Releasing and officially launched the film division known as Entertainment Studios Motion Pictures.
2: That sounds like a BoJack Horseman (laughs) studio. Yes, the movie movie
1: movie studio. Anyway, the company was actually the highest bidder on Nate Parker's The Birth of a Nation at Sundance in 2016, although it didn't ultimately take the film. And he also made a play for Dee Reese's Mudbound at Sundance this year, which ultimately went to Netflix. So an aggressive buyer with a solid bank means good things for independent filmmakers, right? Well, as Dana Harris from IndieWire points out, quote, the indie graveyard is filled with dozens of companies that were moneyed and bold. Among the currently struggling are Broad Green Pictures, Entertainment One, and EuropaCore, with Relativity Media recently laid to rest, RIP. Ultimately, all of this begs the question that we've begged before on the show of what exactly is an indie film. After all, Hostiles, the western I mentioned earlier, was made for a reported 50 million bucks, and Byron Allen himself told IndieWire, I'm not chasing independence. I'm chasing Walt Disney. He said... I'm looking for a large piece of that box office pie, not a tiny piece of that box office pie.
2: (laughs) Uh, For the record, also, Walt Disney, totally dead. So Byron Allen just said his ambition is death. Just pointing that out.
1: Yeah, that's creepy. Anyway, personally, I think anyone trying to forge an independent path is good for us, but I'm still gunning for that new category that we haven't quite found a name for, like this segment. Um, there's So there's like studio pictures, high finance independents like those that interest Byron Allen's entertainment studios, and like really, really indie indies. So we'll see how that all plays out. Moving on, I'm excited to share some good news in this otherwise pretty sad week. Just about one year ago on the show, we announced the start of a new initiative called Free the Bid, headed up by one of my favorite filmmakers, Alma Harrell. The aim of Free the Bid is to get more women directors jobs in advertising, which as we know is how many indie filmmakers are able to stay afloat and support their artistic works. The organization does this by asking agencies to include a minimum of one woman director on every project where there are three bids presented to a client, and on the flip side asking marketers to seek one woman's bid on each of their commercial productions. This doesn't mean they have to choose a woman to direct, it just means that a woman has to at least be considered alongside her male counterparts. And guess what? A year in, it's working. More than 40 agencies have come on board, along with major brands like Coca-Cola, Airbnb, Twitter, Levi's, LinkedIn. In the case of BBDO, a huge global ad agency, the number of women included in their bids has increased 400%. And the actual number of women directors hired has doubled. According to Shoot Online, this is in contrast to the numbers of women directors in Hollywood, which, despite success stories of record breaking films like Wonder Woman, have actually been reducing. Women comprised just 7% of all directors working on the 250 highest grossing domestic releases in 2016, indicating a decline of two percentage points, according to a new report from the Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film. Womp womp. So, if you're a female director interested in commercial work, Free the Bid adds more women to its database weekly, so go to freethebid.com for details. And all this is to say that if we want change in our industry, we might just have to make it ourselves. Way to go Alma Harrell and Free the Bid. Peggy Olson would be proud, and so am I. And finally, in headlines, here's another fun one. We are always talking about the unsung heroes of productions, like hair and makeup or production design, but I think in some ways writers are the most unsung of all. Like, you don't hear about Melissa Matheson's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. You hear about Steven Spielberg's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. But without Matheson's script, there literally would be no E.T. So that's why we're happy that Matheson made it to number 51 on Vulture's list of 100 best screenwriters of all time, which was just released this week. The coolest part about this list is it's not just like some dude's opinion. It was compiled from the votes and input of 40 of the top working screenwriters today, several of whom are actually on the list themselves, like Judd Apatow, Eric Roth, and Sofia Coppola. Now, it's not the most diverse list ever, admittedly, but Vulture, I think, rightly nods to the list's general lack of cultural diversity by stating that, quote, "...acknowledging today's urgent need for more inclusive storytelling doesn't negate the contributions of these 100 pioneers." End quote. What did surprise me is the diversity in terms of the style, genre, and tone of the writers... I like that, for example, a movie's content didn't have to be serious for the writing to be taken seriously. The list is ranked, by the way, and the number one spot went to Billy Wilder, who penned Some Like It Hot and won Oscars for three films, The Lost Weekend, Sunset Boulevard, and The Apartment. So I would love for you guys to weigh in. John, you were working on your short screenplay for a lot of the past year, so I wanted to know kind of your thoughts on the list and also whether any of these people had kind of a direct influence on your style
0: yeah I mean I've been working on that screenplay for three years uh, a little bit more than I wish I could say it was just this year but it's been in the
1: I was trying to make you sound good
0: yeah well you know <laughs> I'm sure that a lot of these screenwriters had a, a similar sort of lengthy writing process um, So yeah I mean I just chose 10 from the list of a hundred uh, and I ranked them I guess in what my ranking would be as as far as like being an influence on me this is a pretty well-rounded list. So, here we go. Number 18 on Vulture's list, but number one on my list is Stanley Kubrick, uh, who I'm shocked was number 18. Didn't even make it into the top 10. Most of my screenwriters go kind of against what you said earlier about how, uh, uh, like, E.T. wasn't written by Steven Spielberg. Most of these people are people who wrote and directed their own movies. Um, I don't know why that's the case. I just... Maybe having complete control over it for some reason or another made uh made me like the movie more.
1: You know, it's so interesting. I was actually going to kind of ask you about that. I mean, I want to hear more of your list, but also a lot of the people on the, the Vulture list were writer-directors. And for me, someone who's not a screenwriter, I sort of wondered, like, how do we know what – like, what is it that the screenplay – does so well versus their directing. You know, is it actually Kubrick's directing that you love so much or is it his physical scripts?
2: Well, it's also because, like, all three of the ones they list in notable scripts for Kubrick are adaptations of other source work. Yeah, So it's this complicated melange. And what's interesting, too, is all of the, like, screenwriters on the list, with the exception of, like, one or two, all of them are famous for the scripts they wrote for big name, A-list, idiosyncratic directors like Melissa Matheson doing this Spielberg screenplays. So, like, execution is still such a big part of making a movie that there's not a lot of people on this list that are, like, amazing screenwriters that are writing movies that are then directed by, like, you know, journeyman middle-of-the-road directors. Like, it's great screenwriters working with great directors either as a writer-director or working with great directors that are executing that allow – us to see the great screenplay.
0: Yeah, and I mean George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were both on this list of a hundred, um, but you know Lawrence Kasdan wrote, I think, the majority of George Lucas's good movies, barring American Graffiti, and uh, well, seemed...
2: and Lucas didn't write American Graffiti, right? No, he did. I thought he had writers. No, nope,
0: he wrote it. It's it's actually like based off of the county where we grew up, Marin. So it's his a uh, slice of life sort of story. Um, Anyways, continuing on my list really quick, Uh, number five on Vulture's list, but number two on my list is Francis Ford Coppola, who, you know, one of the greatest adaptations of all time, if we're talking about The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. Uh, Number two on Vulture's list, but number three on mine are The Coen Brothers, who pretty much all original scripts there. Uh, Number... Four on my list, but number seven on Vulture's list is Charlie Kaufman, who is another very original screenwriter and not a director.
1: I might have to pipe in and say he might be my number one.
0: He's great. And he did direct... Um, Anomalisa. But also uh, Synecdoche, New York. Oh, he did? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, number five on my list, but number 60 on Vulture's list is David Lynch. Um, I just think, like, someone who can get to that weirdness level is definitely worth putting up there. Number six on my list, but number four on Vulture's list, is Quentin Tarantino, another very strong original screenplay writer. Number seven on my list, but number 97 on Vulture's list, is John Carpenter, who I think, like, when we're looking at a, a breadth of his entire work... Uh, I think that that's something that definitely needs to be taken into consideration, and he literally wrote classics in every single genre imaginable um, and directed the hell out of them. So, I mean, I think 97 is a bit of an unfair spot, but he's my number seven. Number eight is Mel Brooks on my list. He's number 36 on Vulture's list. Uh, I mean, the dude could write a joke. (laughs) What else can you say? Uh, Number nine on my list Wes Anderson, number 66 on Vulture's list. And finally rounding it out, number 10 on my list is Harold Ramis, and he was number 54 on Vulture's list. And, of course, he wrote some of the best comedies of all time and directed them.
1: Well John you've managed to create an even less diverse list than the overall vulture list but i'm wondering why what what is it about this group that speaks to you so
0: You know it's the fact that they're all white men i think Yeah Yeah no um i mean <laughs> you know there it, it's really if we're looking at things that inspire someone to write there's every element of writing i think in every one of these authors that are sorry these screenwriters That I've mentioned you know they bring they all bring elements with their screenwriting that I would like to see in one feature film so like you know you have the jokes of Mel Brooks with the let's say the suspense of John Carpenter and then throw in like the way the Coen brothers write a period piece on top of that and then add like surreal David Lynch elements into that Um, you know it's and then maybe like get crazy with the structure like Tarantino does there's so many different things that a screenwriter can pull from these screenwriters um, to make a cohesive work of their own. I think Uh, that is just, yeah. I mean, that's what I'd say. I don't know. Is that, is that what you were asking?
1: I'm not sure at this point, but I'm going to say that's going to be one hell of a movie with all those elements in it. I love it. Yeah. Um,
0: I mean, like, you know, you have to have Coppola and Kubrick at the top, I think. And for me, I don't know. There, there was a lot of, this is just reflective of the type of movie that I like to see, so it's a completely subjective list. Like, I didn't include any of the more classic screenwriters, I guess. Like, uh, Billy Wilder wasn't even on my list um, because you know those movies weren't movies that affected me in the same way that they've affected other filmmakers. So.
1: Well, we know that our listeners really, you know, are loath to give opinions, um, but if if you guys could really. Ring it out of yourselves this one time. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. I, I'll link to the uh, post about this list on this week's podcast post, and you can weigh in.
2: And I won't weigh in on this list, but I will say of all of the graves I've visited of all of these screenwriters, Billy Wilder had the best quote on his gravestone, and I'll leave it at that.
1: What? You should be a suspense writer.
2: Go find his grave, that means.
1: Where the hell is it?
2: Uh, it's in Los Angeles. Same graveyard as Marilyn Monroe and- um, Hugh Hefner. And Hugh Hefner. Creepy McCreeper person. He got buried next to Marilyn Monroe. I thought he was on top of her. I thought (laughs) he bought the grave on top of her. That's possible, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, he paid a lot of money for the grave, because it's a mausoleum. They're stacked. And when you do the uh, tour, they're like, that's Marilyn Monroe, and that's the slot on top of Marilyn Monroe, which sold for like a million dollars to Hugh Hefner, because the world is a terrible, disgusting place.
1: Fun facts. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Charles, what do you have for us in Gear News this week?
2: All right, moving on to Gear News. The biggest tech news this week is the super bright 300D from Aperture, uh, which is spelled with two U's and no E. So LED lights have been a player on film sets for a decade. I remember so clearly 2006 gaffing a feature and opening light panels for the first time and being like, oh, my God, batteries. This is so exciting. But they've always been really small, not super powerful, and uh, they're only recently creeping up into being powerful enough to replace some of the longtime standbys of tungsten and HMI units like the long-loved 2K Jr. tungsten unit, which is like a, a standby as being the biggest tungsten unit you could wall power. So with the 300D, Apertures has made a unit that puts out the equivalent amount of light as that 2K Jr., but it only draws 300 watts. Which means if you're working in North America, which is 20 amp, 120 volt, you could plug six of them into your wall outlet using a power strip. Although the power strip would have to be really good. If you're working in a 220 volt country, you could put in even more. Coming in at around a grand, I'm really shocked they didn't go for like a 2K for 1K sales pitch. But I guess maybe if they go on sale for actually a grand, they might do that. Regardless of sales tactics, for those of us who frequently work on like little shoots where we're wall powering everything and we don't have a generator, the bigger lights we can get that we can wall power, the happier we are. And these should be really popular for that level of filmmaker, especially coming in around uh, a thousand eleven hundred dollar price point. You might even be able to get a couple and have some bigger units. It's also really great that they are battery powered, although they do require two batteries, not just one. But if you're in that situation where you're doing like a night exterior and you want like a moonlight kind of gag, it wouldn't be a super bright moonlight, but you want some sort of backlight you throw out in a field. What you used to have to do is run a long cable run or get out there with a putt-putt jenny. And now with this, you can have a couple batteries. You can go set the unit up far away and not have to run power to it. So it's an exciting time in LEDs and it's nice to see them getting more powerful and uh, aperture leading that charge. Uh, Next up SSDs are just barely becoming affordable options as, like, your day-to-day working drive. And G Tech has jumped in and come out with an R-series with R standing for rugged. Uh, like design... John. Yeah, the John series drive. So these are designed to withstand a 9-meter drop onto carpeted concrete. I love the little note at the bottom of the website onto carpeted concrete. Um, but it, they're dust and vibration-resistant. The biggest thing is because they're an SSD, they're super fast with 560 megabits per second. So if you've been doing all of your like imports and exports and file transfers on a normal old spinning disk hard disk, this is like four to five times faster than that, which can be a huge time saver. If you're dropping off footage with your editor, picking up a cut or taking something to a post house. So SSD, I feel like we're finally to the point where we can just barely start thinking about affording One of our drives to be an SSD, and I think the R series are worth a look, since if you're running around a lot with the drive, the drive's going to take a lot of abuse. Uh, Last up this week is a new sales platform, Lens Finder, which was launched by Matthew Duclos of Duclos Lenses, uh, who also has this amazing blog, The Cine Lens, if you're a lens nerd. So Lens Finder is a platform devoted only to the sale of used lenses. Why does this matter in a world where you could just sell your lenses on eBay? Well, sometimes it's actually really helpful to like take a business that's going on e- eBay or Craigslist and move it over to a dedicated platform with special tools. I mean, you could sublet before Airbnb, but oh my God, it's so much easier to find a good one through Airbnb than Craigslist. And like in the car world, you can buy a car on Craigslist, but for nerd cars, so there's just site like bring a trailer and it has dedicated tools to make shopping for that one thing easier. And I hope that Lens Finder is going to, be the same thing for people shopping for used cinema lenses, a dedicated site with knowledgeable staff. I mean, I don't know that there's there's maybe 10 people on earth who know as much about lenses as Matthew Duclos. And so having that and then having that community, like no matter how interested you are in lenses, you're never going to go to eBay and just browse the cinema lenses once a week. Um, but you might just browse what's up on, Uh, Lens Finder every once in a while and see what's for sale and what they're selling for. And it should should help pricing reach a more equitable place. And who knows, maybe you'll learn some cool stuff about lenses you'd never heard of before. So I'm excited about it. I think a lot of us are excited around here to have a dedicated lens shopping site.
1: Yeah, it's in beta now, but it also looks like it's going to be cheaper to use than eBay. Like the, the fees are different. so.
2: Oh, yeah, because eBay's fees are really not designed for, like, professional equipment-y stuff. Mm. So the percentage, you're right, does get kind of high, whereas I think they're taking a lower cut.
1: Or they're, like, capping it.
2: Oh, yeah, they cap the cut. Yeah, it's Which, if you're selling $50,000 lenses, the eBay fees can get big.
1: Oof, yeah. So, Charles, we'll uh, have you back after this short commercial break for an Ask No Film School question. We've all been there. You're on deadline for a project and you need some footage that you just don't have. You're faced with using something not quite right or cutting a segment altogether because high quality stock footage is way too expensive or hard to come by. Well, thankfully, those days may be over because now you can get studio quality stock plus after effects templates, motion backgrounds, and sound effects for a fraction of the cost from the VideoBlocks member library. Plus get exclusive discounts on millions of additional marketplace clips where you save 40% and you're supporting other filmmakers too because the original artists take home 100% of the sale price of Marketplace clips. All the content is royalty free, so you can use it for commercial and personal projects. And new clips are added regularly, so there's always something fresh to download. Go to videoblocks.com slash nofilmschool to get all the stock footage you can imagine for only $149 a year. That's Videoblocks, V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash nofilmschool to save on millions of studio-quality clips from Videoblocks.
0: All right, and we're back. This week on Ask No Film School, Duncan Smith asks, I'm outfitting my GH5 and thinking about a cage. Is it even necessary? What do you think, Charles?
2: So first off, I had the honor of meeting Duncan in person a few weeks ago out in Coronado. Uh, Duncan is a Navy SEAL and a filmmaker and a fan of the podcast. And he offered me a tour of the Navy SEAL training facility in Coronado. And I would never pass on that opportunity. So I took it and it was amazing. And thank you so much, Duncan. It was a total pleasure. And the tour was awesome. Um, So. After the tour, when he asked me some filmmaking questions, which I suppose is the price of getting a tour, um, he emailed this follow-up question, and I thought it would make a great Ask No Film School question. Do you need a cage for your camera? Like, do you need a cage for your camera? And my answer for that is the same answer I usually have when someone's like, do I need to get a lawyer? Which is, probably not, but when you do need one, you'll know it. A cage does provide more protection for your camera at the expense of weight and size, and some users like it for that extra protection, but you can get that extra protection in other ways. Like, I use a leather half case, and that's plenty of protection. I've dropped my camera a couple times, and it survived. You don't need a cage until you need a cage, and then when you need a cage, you'll know.
1: Wait, can we step back? For those who might not know, what is a cage?
2: So there are a bunch of different companies like SmallRig comes to mind and there's a few others that make a metal cage that goes around your DSLR camera. And I suppose they make some for fancier cameras, but you mostly think of it for like a GH5 or a 5D and it's a metal cage that goes around your camera and like adds an extra layer of protection and more mounting points for accessories and all that kind of stuff.
1: Literally a cage.
2: Literally like a shark cage, but for cameras. Huh. So, the big thing that a cage provides beyond protection is accessory mounting points. So, instead of only having like a single quarter-twenty threaded tripod mount on the bottom of your camera, a well-designed cage is going to provide mounting points all over the body. So, you can rig your camera up with all sorts of complicated, interesting accessories and in strange places. So, a cage is really helpful when you go accessory crazy. It's easy enough when you're like, oh, I just need to mount a light occasionally or a microphone every once in a while. But what happens when you have an Atomos monitor recorder? Do we call it a monocorder yet? I'm going to say monocorder. You've got an Atomos monocorder, a Rode video mic, a blind spotlight, and your camera is running out of places you can attach all that stuff. Once you throw in like a wireless audio receiver, you've got a really complicated rig and a cage helps you mount that in a convenient easy stable way and then once you've got that crazy rig all rigged up then if you need to mount it on a crane or to the ceiling you've got mounting points for that which is why i say you'll know you need a cage when you know you need it are you constantly frustrated at rigging your camera and you're constantly thinking oh i need another point to put this or i need like another clip to put that it's time for a cage Are you living mostly on your tripod and you never really put accessories on your camera and you've never dropped it? And there's probably other accessories you should be looking at before it's cage time. You will totally know it's time to get a cage because you'll constantly be thinking, man, I really need a cage.
0: Um, Thank you again for the great question and the amazing tour.
1: And thanks for listening to the show, Duncan.
0: And now on to some movies opening this week. There's a lot um, starting with video on demand, you can check out The Honor Farm on October 3rd. This quote unquote psychedelic midnight horror film premiered earlier this year at South by Southwest where our reporter Oakley Anderson Moore, what's her last extra last name now? <gasps> Oakley N- Anderson spoiler, Moore right? Reinhard. Reinhard, Well, I just want to make sure I get her name right? <laughs> she got the chance to interview director Karen Skloss. The movie follows a group of kids who wander deep into the woods on prom night and come back changed forever. How do they change? Is there like an orgy in the woods and all of them lose their virginity? That's for you to find out. I think drugs are involved, though, because otherwise it wouldn't have been called a psychedelic midnight horror film. Oakley's interview is interesting because she actually interviews Karen and her high school age daughter, who helped the mom keep the script an accurate depiction of what it's like to be in high school. You can check out When a Mom Writes a Horror Psychedelic Prom Night Thriller, The Honor Farm, on the site.
1: Kiyoko Miyake's Sundance premiere, Tokyo Idols, came to Netflix this week. I interviewed Miyake back in Park City, where I called it one of the year's most disturbing docs. But it's also one of the most compelling. Tokyo Idols is about the rabid fan culture for young female Japanese pop stars, but the fans that stream into their concerts by the thousands and have made the so-called Tokyo Idols a multi-billion dollar business in Japan are not the young girls you might expect. They are grown men. So Miyaki does an incredible job of bringing us a non-judgmental look into the lives of both some of the young starlets and their adult male fans. And it's really worth a look, especially if you're interested in modern Japanese culture or in like a broader conversation about what's happening with masculinity and teen sexuality today in the world.
0: So moving on from the sexual teen movies, <laughs> we missed this one, this release for Hulu last week. The Reagan Show has been available since October 4th. And this documentary about Reagan's tenancy of the White House is entirely made up of archival footage. As the late Emily Booter said in her introduction (laughs) to an interview... Again, not dead. She's dead. (sighs) God forbid. She's not dead. She emailed me some weird email this morning. So as she said in her introduction to an interview with the editors of the film... There is not a single talking head in Sierra Pettengol and Pacho Velez's documentary, The Reagan Show. No one sits around glibly pontificating on Reagan's legacy. Instead, history speaks for itself, and it's the audience's job to listen. Daniel Garber, David Barker, and Francisco Bello sifted through thousands of hours of news reports and White House TV footage shot by the Reagan administration in an unprecedented effort to document his presidency. You can read our full interview, The Reagan Show, Editors Reveal, America's First Reality TV President, on the site. And you can also listen to director Sierra Pettengol talk about what it was like to raise funds for the film in our latest podcast episode that came out Monday entitled, What is a Film Fellowship and Why Should You Do One?
1: I'm really excited to see that one. I missed it on the circuit, but it's such a, like, relevant moment for it. You know, now everybody documents their presidencies with all the that kind of reality footage.
0: Yeah, I like that type of documentary too. I like archival documentaries without the talking heads. Frank Zappa uh, in his own – or I think it's like eat, eat his own – eats his own words? Eat your word. – I don't know. There was a Frank Zappa documentary that was at Sundance a few years ago, and it does the exact same thing, and it's just really cool to see – the subject of the documentary talk about his own life as it's happening Uh, it's an interesting way to tell a story
1: so a film that premieres actually tonight at the new york film festival is coming to hbo this saturday and this one is a biopic filmmaker's dream it's called spielberg and it's the first ever career-spanning doc about airplane engine innovator rodney spielberg (laughs) i can't even get through my own joke because it's so hilarious just kidding it's actually the first ever career-spanning Doc about filmmaker extraordinaire Steven Spielberg. The man has rarely even given extended interviews, so the fact that Spielberg director Susan Lacey got over 30 hours of interviews with him is impressive in and of itself. Now, this is not an archival documentary. This is interview-based, but it's still pretty darn compelling, and Lacey was the right person to do it. Uh, she's the creator and former executive producer of the PBS series American Masters, And for that show, she produced no less than 250 films exploring the lives of America's most enduring cultural icons. So for Spielberg, she moved from producing to turn her hand to directing. And I interviewed her and editor Deborah Peretz for an upcoming podcast about what it was like to put together a film with all of those interviews. Plus, never before seen personal footage from Spielberg. Really cool stuff of his early days hanging out with Coppola and Lucas. And of course, footage from his own 50 plus films to create something that's not just a retrospective of work, but a portrait of the man behind it. So, anyone interested in modern American cinema will enjoy this film and look out for the podcast in a couple of weeks.
0: And the name of that Frank Zappa documentary, Eat That Question. Eat That Question is the name of the Frank Zappa documentary. Now, moving on to theatrical releases for this week. The Florida Project comes out on October 6th in New York and Los Angeles, before expanding nationwide. Man, where to start on this film? First off, I can definitively say that this is a strong candidate for my favorite movie of the year, right up there with Get Out. So it's pretty much impossible to compare those two movies, but they're the best movies I've seen this year. This is Sean Baker's follow-up to the infamously iPhone-shot Tangerine, and while Tangerine was perhaps an experiment on how to be as economical as possible on your film shoot, as many of Baker's early films are, The Florida Project is the type of film Baker has been working to make his entire career. It's shot on 35mm film, and it's just incredible to look at. While his cast is primarily made up of fresh faces, as per usual, he also has the added benefit of working with Willem Dafoe. The film itself is almost like a modern-day Little Rascals. Set over one summer in Celebration, Florida, the home of Disney World, it follows the everyday adventures of a precocious six-year-old named Mooney, who's a child whose mother lives month-to-month in a motel and does some less-than-favorable things to make rent. The real star of the film is Brooklyn Prince, the six-year-old actress who plays Mooney. She'll have you on the floor laughing, crying, and everything in between. I talked to Sean earlier this week, and our discussion will be released as a podcast episode this Monday. The director has worked harder than anybody to make it this far, and his story is extra inspiring for low-budget filmmakers. You can hear all about what he had to do to get to this point in his career. You can also do some prep work for that interview by reading his masterclass he gave, which I wrote up from IFP Film Week. It's called Tangerine, The Florida Project director Sean Baker on mastering the art of guerrilla run-and-gun filmmaking. And, yeah, finally, coming to theaters October 6th, Blade Runner 2049. Woo-hoo, woo! The time has finally come. Advanced reviews have critics raving about Denis Villeneuve's sequel to Ridley Scott's sci-fi classic. Many say Roger Deakins is a shoo-in for his first and finally well-deserved Oscar, Others say that it's even better than the original, which, yeah, you know, I'm not too sure you guys, you critic dudes, but alright. In any case, we've been building up the hype for this over the past few weeks with a number of articles showing the shorts that have been released and marketing the film, and we'll link to those in the podcast article if you haven't had a chance to see them yet. I'm stoked to see it, and would definitely be hitting up a midnight screening if I didn't have tickets to see The Babe Rainbow at Baby's All Right. If anyone else is going to be at the Babe Rainbow at Babies All Right tomorrow night, actually tonight, then... uh,
1: If any babes are going to be there, look for Jim John Jim.
0: Bring a sign. (laughs) The film stars Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, and Jared Leto, and it's about a young Blade Runner's discovery of a long-buried secret, which leads him to track down former Blade Runner Rick Deckard, who's Harrison Ford's character, and he's been missing for 30 years.
1: I put this on our most anticipated films of 2017 list. And, of course, I am just really anticipating it, as we all have been. God, I hope it's not disappointing.
0: It doesn't seem like it's going to be, but, you know, whenever people say that, I go in with a little bit of worry.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, also, our uh, our writer Darren James is arranging an interview with the man, the myth, the legend, Roger Deakins about the film. So I cannot wait to read it. And of course, we'll uh, let you know when it's up on NoFilmSchool.com. And now we've got some grant deadlines. This one, I remember from last year, it's super cool. Deadline October 6th, that is tomorrow, for the Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellowship. For filmmakers with an undergrad degree and a desire to travel for a year to film stories that fall into the themes of the 2018-2019 application, this fellowship could be for you. The Fulbright National Geographic Storytelling Fellowship will accept proposals to undertake an in-depth examination of a globally relevant issue. Multi-country projects will compare and contrast how an issue or set of issues is experienced across borders. Utilizing a variety of storytelling tools, including text, photography, video, podcasts, public speaking, maps, illustrations, etc., storytellers will share their stories and the stories of those they meet and publish their work on Nat Geo platforms, including a dedicated program blog. Then the stories deemed by Nat Geo to be of interest or merit may be considered for publication on some of their other platforms. Sounds like a super cool opportunity to travel and tell stories for a year.
0: Yeah, definitely a prime opportunity especially for cartographers it would seem really yeah maps are included as a form of storytelling tool which is pretty cool and on october 10th there is a deadline for the sf film new american producer fellowship which you should all know about now what a fellowship means if you've listened to the podcast are you an independent producer who has recently immigrated to the U.S.? This brand new grant made possible by the Flora Family Foundation will award $25,000 and a Filmhouse artist residency in San Francisco to a producer who fits that bill. The Fellowship was envisioned to provide a stage for the perspectives of underrepresented filmmakers and to enrich the understanding, empathy, and curiosity of the general public. The New American Producer Fellowship seeks to support the work of new American artists while bolstering the diversity of the SF filmmakers community and ultimately providing meaningful and challenging experiences to public audiences.
1: And festival deadlines. Tomorrow is the late deadline for the Big Sky Film Festival, which takes place in Missoula, Montana, Big Sky Country. From February 16th to the the 25th, 2018, this festival hosts over 200 visiting artists, presents an average of 150 nonfiction films, and offers a variety of exciting events throughout town. In addition to screenings, it hosts Doc Shop, a five day industry event that includes panels, masterclasses, workshops, and the Big Sky pitch session. Also, as John mentioned, you should also no more now about what pitch sessions entail after listening to the last two Monday's podcasts about pitching. Uh, so the winner of the Big Sky Film Festival, Best Mini Documentary and Best Short Documentary categories automatically qualify to compete for a Doc Short Oscar the following year.
0: And on October 9th, there's a deadline for the Flickr Fest International Short Film Festival. This takes place January 12th to the 21st in Bondi Beach, Australia. FlickrFest is an Academy-accredited and BAFTA-recognized festival. Highlights of the festival then tour 50-plus venues across Australia. Industry and cash prizes will be awarded of over 40000 Australian dollars in value. And finally, the American Documentary Film Festival and Film Fund, also known as Amdocs, has a deadline on October 14th. This is one of the largest docs-only festivals in the United States. It focuses on international films in both the short and feature categories, as well as showcasing animation. In conjunction with the festival is the American Documentary Film Fund, where U.S. filmmakers compete for startup or finishing funds. For the film fund, competing filmmakers can win up to $50,000.
1: Good prizes this week. So, now it's time for Weekly Words of Wisdom. That's our new jingle. Do you like it? (laughs) I'm going to use my Weekly Words of Wisdom time this week to point you toward a fantastic resource for documentary filmmakers— It's the Film Money Map 2.0 from the Sundance Documentary Film Program, which is a new and improved edition of their Guide to Tax Incentives first released last year. I think that doc filmmakers don't always realize that we can take advantage of the same types of state tax incentives that major narrative productions frequently benefit from. So this guide not only shows you that you can, but also details each state's documentary tax incentive or rebate program and how to use them. It also suggests the questions you want to ask to make sure the program is a good fit for your project, like what's the minimum spend to qualify for funding, which expenses are eligible, and when. And the best part is it's free. The download link is in my article about the guide from this week, and we will link to that from this week's podcast post.
0: So I saw Richard Linklater's Last Flag flying last week at New York Film Festival, which has been going on for the past couple weeks, and aside from my own personal feelings on the film, there was one thing I found especially interesting that was brought up in the Q&A after the screening. So my words of wisdom sort of have to do with mindfulness of what the future could hold for your film, or really how circumstances that aren't present when you're filming could come up and give new meaning to your film later on, So just for a little bit of context, Last Flag Flying is a perfect example of this. The film is about a group of Vietnam war vets who reunite to bury one of their sons after he's killed in action in the Iraq War. There's a ton of heavy imagery about the flag and discussion of what it means to be a proud American within the film, and it was released pretty much four days after this whole American flag, national anthem, NFL, Trump thing has been happening. So, while Linklater was making the film, none of this was really relevant, but now it places the film in a different context. While Linklater and Lawrence Fishburne were quick to dismiss any sort of connection with the protests, Jay Quentin Johnson, who's in the film, and he was also in Everybody Wants Some, was sort of struck by the coincidence. He said, and I quote, "...well, I think it's interesting when you're creating art, telling stories, and then the layers that just get imposed upon by time on this thing that we did for a few weeks in Pittsburgh." That's an interesting phenomenon. That has nothing to do with what we did in Pittsburgh. It just kind of is the way it is. And then different groups of people, veterans, millennials, people that have had family members that have served, all will have different opinions and ideals and takeaways from this film because of what's going on in this current climate. But again, the few weeks that we spent in Pittsburgh could never have anything to do with what's going to happen in 2017. So I thought that was kind of cool.
1: It's so interesting and it sort of goes to show the kind of thing that we've said on the show so many times is like you just have to follow your heart and make this story that you really believe in and chances are that like you're on to something. You know, Letter knew maybe he didn't know exactly what was going to happen but he knew that this is a moment where we're sort of investigating our own cultural identity as Americans and now it's like his film became more relevant than ever. I think that's awesome. Yeah. So we have some real big shout-outs this week. Uh, we are celebrating not one, but two weddings in the No Film School family right now. So last weekend, our beloved longtime No Film School writer, Oakley Anderson Moore, as John mentioned, who might be Oakley Anderson slash Moore slash Reinhardt something something now, got married to her producer on her film, brave new wild Alexander and this weekend Charles our very own Charles Hayne of no film school podcast ask no film school gear news fame is getting married to his love Kate so we are really really happy that the no film school family continues to grow and we love you all and wish you just super super happy creative fun filled adventuresome and loving lives uh.
0: As I mentioned before, next week's podcast will be with Sean Baker, whose movie The Florida Project opens in New York and L.A. on Friday. It was definitely one of the most inspiring interviews I've ever conducted, and there's a ton of insight for people who have been going about making films on their own without any budget and who have been doing so for years on end. So take a listen if that matches your uh, career. It matched mine.
1: Sounds very no-film school friendly. And in the meantime, if you're not at Charles's wedding, please stay in touch. Or even if you are, you can read about everything we talked about on the show and more about the craft of filmmaking at NoFilmSchool.com. And we always ask that you please subscribe to the No Film School podcast in your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss any of the Monday interview episodes or Thursday Indie Film Weekly episodes. Rate us on iTunes. And, of course, stay in touch. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter.
0: I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim
1: underscore John underscore Jim.
0: Did you know that Sean Baker are, uh subscribes to the podcast?
1: Yeah, he does. Yes, he cool. does. So
0: you can be like Sean Baker if you want to.
1: Thanks, Sean. That's so awesome. We love you. And anyway, you can stay in touch with all of us, and maybe even Sean Baker, on Twitter at No Film School. So we'll see you next week. dun dun dun. dun.